Hey guys, and welcome back to the OPD podcast with Joe and Austin. This is the August Q&A. I literally 10 minutes ago just put out the July Q&A. So you're going to be hearing this about a month from now. Um, Austin put out a question box and then a bit later I put out one. So what we'll do is work through Austin's questions. And then um, if we've got time at the end, we'll um, roll onto mine. But before we do, Austin, I saw another fat loss phase update today. Things are looking pretty freaky. And we were discussing whether you were going to continue it or not the last time we spoke, but obviously you did. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Still going. I uh, I got those labs back recently. Everything looked really good. Um, no issues there. So, you know, it continues. The question becomes competing which i think i'm going to but i need to figure out where <laughs> so you know uh because it wasn't a traditional thing where i kind of picked a show and then worked for it <clears throat> however in that in the kind of late fall time frame there's a lot of options at mm-hmm. least here so you know i'm not too worried about it though i want to compete in something that's going to be um a decent level show so that's what i'm scoping out and seeing and i I kind of i'm i'm throwing around the idea of maybe making a long weekend out of it where we'll travel somewhere you know and then can maybe check check out the area afterwards yeah man cool yeah make the most of it wish you there nice yeah you're um yeah and there's uh, there's no real, the only other national shows are NPC nationals, which <clears throat> I don't really feel like getting third call out. So, um, <laughs> if it were a junior level, like junior nationals or something, I'd may consider just doing that. But, um, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. You, you're really not far off conditioning wise now, surprisingly for this, like true TRT. It's a very, um, very different kind of prep, isn't it? But it's worked fantastically well, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I um, I still have kind of that that low back area, right, which is kind of plagues most of men, I suppose. Um, but now, I mean, it's been up to this point, dare I say, pretty smooth. I mean, I'm still... And I still like if if we have something going on and I want to go out to eat, I just go out to eat and I, I'll loosely track things like that, you know. And I, hell, the last two weeks I dropped three pounds both weeks, and I, so I just increased my refeed even more. Mm. Seems to be like a very uh, low physiological and psychological phase, like uh, a stress. Uh, I mean, when I say that. Um, yeah, obviously from the drug side of things being very, very low, but then also, you know, like you're saying, you know, the, the lifestyle management, it just seems to have rolled along nicely. Yeah, and I think a big a big component to it is I've never told myself that I was in prep. Right. Right. So that's that sense of I still have the same sense of urgency. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm still uh, hitting my plan and hitting my marks, but there's always something I'm not going to say always, but a lot of time there's something that happens to people mentally when they, now they know they're in prep. Right. So that neurotic 
um, neurotic and, and anxiety and worrying escalates at that point. Whereas I've not felt that at all because I'm like, well, you know, I, I just keep getting lean, no pressure. And now I'm within eight, like eight weeks out of a show condition. Yeah. That's so like, that like lack of forecast of a future event has got to be valuable because then the only consideration is doing what you're supposed to do every day. And every day is just a, yep. a new day. You just do what you're supposed to do and go to bed and wake up and do it again. And you're not thinking, yep. you're not thinking about the culmination of multiple days necessarily. And then a couple of months down the line, you're looking, you're like, oh shit, you know, I've, I've, I've performed all of the actions like I would in prep, you know, I've done all of the things that you would do, but without the, uh, the burdensome, like looming of the show coming, you know? Yeah. Plus, yeah, absolutely. And plus I've auto-regulated better. So like taking, deloading, running through training blocks and stuff, I haven't felt that, oh no, I can't, I can't not, you know, rest because I have to prep. You know what I mean? I haven't, I haven't felt that. So if I need it, I take it. And I've been able to regulate, uh, regulate training fatigue better that way. So, you know, all those things are super valuable for sure. Sweet. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited to, to uh, follow on the rest of the journey. It's certainly getting interesting now. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, I'll, I'll have something probably picked out soon because I'm going to have to, right. <laughs> I'm going to have to pick something if I'm going, uh, yep. 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 Cool. All right. Let's see. Okay. So let me just jump into the questions here. All right. First one is, well, first one's a kind of a prep question. Actually, they say, how do you approach cheat meals the first week post-show to still set yourself up for a good rebound. Okay. Okay. Do you want, do you want to go on that, go at that one? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, firstly, just to talk about the day of the show, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the individual that's competing to go out with their friends and their family on the day of the show and in, enjoy the freedom of eating without tracking after such a, what could be a long and arduous prep and, uh, etc just to pay back some of the event time that they may have missed with with those people over the time however there's always a discussion to be had with these individuals prior when it comes to exhibiting and practicing both mindful eating behaviors and also informed eating behaviors so you know making sure that we know as bodybuilders how energy balance works and uh, etc so we want to be at least avoidant of excessive rates of fat gain that can and will even happen with single feedings there's also the consideration of if you're putting a client on stage you may well have done some kind of degree of electrolyte manipulation fluid manipulation etc um, landed them on the day in a position where they could really do some things to their aldosterone with a single meal that could be very deleterious to their health, let alone their progression through the off-season. So we definitely can't say go to an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet and take 100 units of lanterns before you get there and you know consume as much MSG as possible um, because you could be in trouble. From that point, um, the free meal structure for me, at least initially, 
I'm not a huge fan of. I try to build in more maybe protein and calorie days, maybe a higher day that is at least loosely tracked, like in the way that you mentioned there immediately post-show, because we don't want to ruin the off-season before it's even started with a totality of net fat gain being above and beyond what our target would be, because there would be some targeted fat gain, but you can, you know, every competitor knows that they can blow past that no problem immediately post-show. Um, but also, um, with respect to just establishing an accurate surplus at that point, if you're going out and having an off-plan meal that could vary somewhere between 2,000 and 6,000 calories and you put that as a, a net weekly intake, very hard to assess where that individual actually is in terms of calorie balance for the rate of gain that we want to see. So I save just completely... Uh, non-calorically identified or at least some kind of mindful input of a free meal until the off season when they'll be eating enough to warrant a huge calorie spike on a single day if that's the way that we're doing it and try to build that social aspect in more with protein calorie days where an individual might choose just to go kind of protein spray and modify fast through the day and backload maybe 2000 calories to the last minute or something but being mindful about it in that sense whilst we get an accurate hold on the surplus and also recorrecting uh not even recorrecting just re-establishing fluid balance at that point etc yep absolutely so of course when those calories get higher i mean when calories get high enough your free meal well one your cravings and hunger signaling is already down so the likelihood of you overeating over your baseline is very low, at least not to any large extent, right? So it's pretty easy to execute. Like half the time, if your food gets high enough, your free meals may actually just be like a, a relief mentally. <laughs> uh, but early on, yeah, you brought up a couple, you brought up some good points, especially with fluid balance. That can be pretty dangerous for some people. Um, you know, one meal might not seem like it, but it, normally doesn't end up being one meal. You have that meal and then you, you go raid the supermarket afterwards, right. To take all the snacks back to your hotel room, you know, and then, um, next thing you know, you have pitting edema and you are at high risk of a cardiac event. <laughs> it's not, it's not something that you want to, uh, that you want to mess around with. And then, you know, as far as like calorie balance, your points are your points are perfect there. It gets pretty difficult to establish what that surplus, what the surplus needs actually are when you're eating and that giant uh, bolus of food, you know, throughout the week. So definitely agree. Um, okay, perfect. Refeed questions. They ask, and I'll go at this one first, but. They ask uh, roughly how many extra calories do you gents like adding to a refeed day, which is going to be pretty difficult to answer, but I can give you some, I can give you a couple things to consider. So one, think about like, what, what is the goal of refeed? The goal is going to be coming out of a, a deficit, right? Primarily um, to kind of mitigate that adaptation that's going on. So with that said, you don't have to be in a, a massive surplus to accomplish this, right? It doesn't necessarily require you being double the calories or anything super drastic. 
Um, it seems that what we know from anecdotally and from research is that time is one of the biggest components here is actually uh, coming out of that deficit for a, a sufficient amount of time, whether that's 48 hours or, or maybe longer. Um, otherwise, we would see the, the one-time free meal would be the end-all be-all. We would just have the big free meal and call it a day. Now, beyond that, um, we have to think about like, how, uh, how, are, how have you responded to free or to refeeds previously? I know for me, I'm going to start by bringing a person up to maybe what I consider maintenance or just above maintenance and then assess. And then you might find as they get leaner and partitioning goes up, insulin sensitivity goes up, they may actually uh, kind of blow through that free meal a little, or I'm sorry, those refeeds a little bit quicker. And you might, that might warrant a little bigger gap between their baseline calories and their refeed. So maybe you're bringing them up a couple hundred, a few hundred calories at first, and maybe later it ends up being like double or triple that amount. Um, you just kind of have to try it and assess. And I think the third piece would be activity also. So I'm a fan of when I'm refeeding with food, I also may use an activity reduction. Um, and it depends again, like how much activity are they doing, especially if they're doing high amounts of cardio or high, uh, systemic stressful training, I might reduce that stress load and that activity load, because that's going to give me not only a stress reduction, but it's also going to change our calorie balance, right? Because their expenditure goes down. So you might only need a small amount of additional food if you're also reducing activity at the same time. So there's a couple of ways to do it. Um, or there's several ways to do it. it really just depends on, you know, how much you need, but I would generally suggest starting kind of conservatively, uh, and then assess and you can always bump it up if needed. I mean, worst case scenario, you don't refeed enough and then you can just do another one later in that same week, even if you need to, you know, so no harm in that. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with everything that you said there. And, you know, that there is the consideration to make of whether you are refeeding for some kind of metabolic reinstatement, which it's worth noting still that the literature on that um, is still very convoluted and especially a huge lack of data in bodybuilders and enhanced bodybuilders that have control over things like the thyroidal axes. The reason why I mention that is I've seen on Physique Collective people get quite stressed, almost have decision fatigue about how often should I refeed and, and blah, 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 um, which is fine. But um, also don't think that it's a necessity to a successful fat loss phase. I've had plenty of preps that work perfectly. In fact, Wardy that I've got competing tomorrow, who I posted a photo of today, it was just a straight linear deficit through the whole thing. And, you know, his head didn't fall off. Um, nothing bad happened. And we didn't see any degree of metabolic, quote-unquote, adaptation along the way because he uses exhaustion of thyroid and we control for energy balance and whatnot um or an easy structure to use if you don't know how frequently to do it and you want to kind of kill two birds with one stone is just bump yourself up to a slight surplus or even maintenance over every deload if you want to also accommodate some uh some of those calories to go towards dropping off training mediated fatigue is a nice structure um and also the, the opportunity to use refeeds to modulate 
excessive total weekly loss, which I think is something you might have mentioned today on your post, actually, where like, you know, you drop three pounds, mm-hmm. so you, you can kind of increase yeah. the size of those refeeds and therefore moderate the amount of total weekly loss. And, and then you have the discussion of preference. Now, I remember when I prepped Dean McKillop, like, we used to do these two high days, not for any other reason than he liked eating more food on two days of the week. You know, so we just put them back to back. Done. Uh, I didn't really give a shit about any kind of metabolic input there. Just a preference. And we just set the weekly energy deficit that way. If you prefer just eating the same shit every day and having some more food on every day, nothing's going to go wrong either. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I had mentioned that in my post too. It's at, at what point, at what point do I just increase my baseline intake versus just refeeding more if I'm dropping too quickly, you know? So there's, there's a lot of considerations. Like, you know, one of the, one of the reasons big, and you mentioned thyroid, one of the big reasons that they had looked at adaptations for refeeding was increasing conversion of T4 to T3, because that, that conversion of thyroid hormone would drop off with stress. Right. So you know, if you're using exogenous thyroid, then you're, that's kind of goes out the window. So, um, especially if you're using T3, you know, because you, you don't have really any need for that conversion. So, um, leptin, leptin levels, maybe, maybe beneficial there, but like you said, the data is not great. Um, and I think I really, I really think that a lot of the benefit that people gain from those is really just either a psychological or B is a reduction in systemic stress because of like a cortisol reduction from insulin levels going up, for example. Definitely. Right. So, so it's, it's not just, it's strict. It's not strictly a metabolic advantage necessarily. So definitely good points. Okay. Let's see. This one, using insulin during pre-contest carb loading and or refeeding during prep. All right, we're getting a lot of prep questions. Hey, it's prep season, man. I've got I've got clients competing every single week until the end of October. Now. Um, That's awesome. Well, it's great and exhausting. <laughs> exhausting, yeah. Exhausting is what I was thinking. You know, when... Um, you're adding like four check-ins to the normal amount of check-ins that you do every day. Did you have yep. a day? <laughs> I've had to yep. literally get up an hour and a half earlier every day just to get them done. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, it's killing me, man. I've got another like two months left. Anyway, yep. uh, let, let's, it's such is the life that I've chosen. I'm not going to complain about being a coach, believe me. Um, uh, okay. Um, use of exhaustion, insulin and prep. Um, very few individuals who ever need to be concerned with this, if you just consider the uh, insulin sensitivity that you will have. When, did this individual say when carb loading? So are we talking about peak week or was it just prep in general? Yes. Yeah. So so peak week or um, or refeeds during prep. Okay. So I, I think the main consideration to have here is how insulin sensitive you are going to be at this point. And you're not going to have any beta cell fatigue to speak of at all. So the use of a basal, I'm pretty sure, is like out the window here. You don't need that pancreatic support from something like a lambda or a receiver or something. So I don't really see warrant in using those types of insulin um, over a, a quote-unquote carb-loading model, for example. Um, we could absolutely have some mechanistic discussion about 
supraphysiological glycogen um what's the wrong of your head disposal which we know yeah. we know and i posted a graph anybody that's on physically well i posted a, a graph the other day comparing endogenous insulin response uh, like mealtime insulin response to various dosages of rapid acting insulin uh, analogs like a nova rapid or a humalog um, and we see that superphysiological glycogen uh, restoration or supercompensation, whatever word you want to use it, around this three to five unit marker. So, you know, if you want to go that way, and this is something, you know, I, I mentioned Wardy earlier, like this is an individual that we did do this with on his peak week, uh, somewhere between three to five units uh, with maybe two of your carbohydrate meals, uh, larger carbohydrate meals and those carb loads is a road that you could travel. But again, just be very aware of how insulin sensitive you're going to be. That's not going to be the same as using five units of Nova Rapid at the peak of your off season. Very different scenario. Um, but yeah, sure. You know, it, it's a higher risk model. If you're an excre extremely muscular individual that has a lot of glucose to partition from being very, very flat, I think it can be warranted. But um, that's the... Uh, the, the the few among the many of competitors yeah yeah i agree i think the biggest biggest point there is probably just understanding why you would use it um which you had mentioned because it's not it's not going to be used from lack of you know availability of pancreatic uh insulin production like that's not why you would use it because at that point, you're you're very insulin sensitive, and you've not been eating to a point where your pancreas is your beta cells are not taxed. You know, if anything, we've and we've talked about this before. Talked about like uh, insulin. We talked about like some of my refeeds, the bigger ones and stuff I had done in previous preps and things like uh, seeing that extreme extreme insulin sensitivity that that can go on when you get really depleted like that. So the amounts that you, you you're, going hypo, you're going hypo anyway. Yeah. Like, right. With, with right. So <laughs> you really, you really have to be, you really have to be careful if you're going to use it. I mean, if your insulin requirements, if you're using a rapid insulin loft season, your requirements are like one unit per eight carbs or whatever, or 10 or 12 or whatever it might be it's certainly going to be quite a bit less than that yeah, on, you know, in this situation, I know that um, I had seen it in really, really sensitive scenarios, even to the point where one unit per, and this was re, uh, refeeding late in the prep, one unit per 20 to 25 grams of carbs was still eliciting a high hypoglycemia with a rapid and we're like, I'm talking three units of Nova Rapid with a 400 gram carb meal and still. Yeah, going. right. Which is like nothing. So it's like one unit per hundred plus grams of carbs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also consider the risk that you might be introducing with, let's say you're towards the end of your load. You go with some kind of fill and spill protocol here. You take your insulin with, uh, with a meal and you, you hit that point where you spill. Good. I'm fully loaded now. I don't want to go anymore. Uh, I'm just going to be pushing more glucose into interstitial spaces and putting myself in a worse position to dry on. And then an hour and a half later, holy shit, you hit the hypo of your life. What are you going to do? Ride it out. You know, every fiber in your body is going to be saying, get into the kitchen and get that cereal out. 
and then you funked it. Yep. Yep. So maybe just again, air, air on the side of extreme caution. Um, and I would, I would just go on to say that it's probably not needed for a lot of people. No, no. But like if you're a hyper muscular individual that would maybe struggle to get through the amount of carbohydrates that you're requiring, the time that you've allotted for loading, like let's say like a day and a half of loading, which is pretty typical. If you've got to get through like 3000 grams of carbohydrate, it's not, even when you're that hungry, it's not that easy. It gets laborious. Maybe if you want to use it with like a, a single post-workout meal at the beginning of your load to just sort of encourage that process, potentiate that process. I, I can see the argument, but, you know, every meal, 10 units of Novorap, no, no, it's stupidity at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Okay. I have one more here. And it is um, asking about where they can gain knowledge of gut health and gut protocols. I can answer that one pretty easy. Come to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to say that Austin's knowledge on that side of things absolutely outweighs mine a hundredfold. And Austin, who is who I've referred to. Uh, people too that have inquired for consultations about gut health that's not my speciality at all so yeah get the uh get the are you still running the mentorships as well yeah man yeah we're we're cranking i keep i'm pretty full all the time um plus i do i also do consultations for for uh coaches and stuff as well like you know if they're having difficulties with a client and things like that um that's that is a service that we can that we can do. Um, I'm actually doing one with Colm next oh, yeah. week. Oh yeah. He asked me for your phone number. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. It's for, I won't, you know, I don't remember which client was, I have it written down in, the, in my book, but they're getting ready to go into prep and stuff and they were having some issues. So we're going to get everything sorted, but yeah. Yeah, I do. Definitely is a huge component of what we cover in uh, in the mentorship. But I mean, there are other there are other sources. Like if you want baseline stuff, you know, like my YouTube channel, there's a lot of baseline stuff. I did like a series on GI maps on there, just basic how to read things. Uh, you know, I mean, I have a, a pre-recorded course, so things that you can you can purchase there if you're not doing the full mentorship. So, I mean, there's other things available and you can always just kind of scour the web, but the problem is you're going to get the problem, just like anything else is there's always context, you know? So it's like when I teach something in the mentorship, the big advantage is we do case studies and samples and look at like application rather than just, you know, um, here's the issue, here's the protocol. Yeah. So and I think you need to be careful where your education comes from with gut health specifically. I think much like PED education, it's uh, an area with a lot of, for lack of a better word, like bullshit peddling. Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Go to Austin. Austin, yeah. oh, Bryce is broke. You're going to get some inquiries now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're right, though, and it's, it's a very it's a hot thing now right gut health Mm -hmm. super hot so you know you're going to have a lot of a lot of marketing money going into that from different people in different areas um so yeah just be careful 
Cool. I've um, I've got some questions, so we can roll on to those. Sure. Let me just um, excuse me, open my Instagram up, see what we've got on here. Okay, first one. Um, give an example on how to add RAR over training. So I, I think what they're asking is um, if you're going to use proximity to failure as a progression tool, um, a, an example of how that might look over a, a mesocycle. Um, okay, I can take that. I, th I think, um, you, you know, without individual context uh, on preferences and uh, experience, and individual response to stimulus to fatigue ratios, et cetera, different proximity to failure. A pretty good starting place is to aim for an average of two RIR. So um, if we've got a five-week training block, like a massing block of five to one, maybe you'd go three, three, two, two, one, for example. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say just look, look, look at the length of your mesocycle. You want to spend at least a week around one, maybe zero to one RAR. It's probably a good idea to begin somewhere where we know is at least minimally effective, so the three to four RAR, and bridge the gap between those two points to the average of two RAR. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Hey, this escalating. I think that's a pretty good model. I don't really have much to add. Yeah, and maybe as you go through those, like to this individual that asked this question, as you go through a meso like that, you can start to pick up signs. Like, I've I've got some clients that when training at higher volumes, they'll notice quite a bit of systemic fatigue start to build, even in the two RAR kind of zone. Especially if they're very strong, very well trained, very well neurologically connected. So you can decide where's like most proficient for you to kind of exist around without overreaching early. Um, and as you gather that, it might be the total opposite. You're like, well, I don't really get that much stimulus. I don't really get that much soreness, even with higher volumes, unless I'm trained to like naught to one hour. And then, okay, cool. Well, maybe you want to live closer to that marker. Just gather that data over time and, and ultimately it will come together to be a piece of programming that works best for you. Yeah. Yep. That's okay. solid. Next question. A good training split apart from push pull legs for five days a week. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Is that yeah. So whew. uh hmm, okay. So I guess the first the biggest consideration that's really going to determine, well, there's two big considerations here that's going to determine this. One, are you running any kind of specialization block or, um, or prior prioritization block for certain body parts? That's the first one, because that's going to dictate the amount of workload and volume for the body parts, right? The second one's probably going to be just how that lays out recovery wise in terms of let you know overlapping recovery if you're training something with a higher frequency um and then beyond that 
that's that's gonna those those two factors will probably determine where you actually lay out you know each body part throughout the week. But how? Uh, but man, it's gonna be it could be all over the place. Beside you know other than that, I mean shit. You could train you can train anything with anything, really. Right. right. Yeah, I think the ultimately <laughs> the main takeaway for this individual would I would say would be. The, the the split the rotation that you're using doesn't really bear much efficiency to your or, or value uh, of the efficiency of your programming maybe a good place for this individual to start would be what volume am i doing per body part each week you know uh you know i'm trying to get 20 sets of biceps but only six sets of quads then you'll start to get an idea. Well, you know, if I'm going to do 20 sets of biceps, it's not going to be very, um, very quote unquote optimal for me to do that on one day. So maybe I'll train biceps on four days. You know, I'll do five sets a day. Maybe I only need one day to nail that quad volume. Um, segregate things out that way rather than deciding to split first and trying to feed into that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. It's just, again, that kind of goes down to just using frequency uh, based on recovery capabilities, based on volume for that muscle group. We've, and I've, I'm fairly certain that we've talked, we talked about this in the training. We did a training specific podcast, right. uh, which was this year, I think sometime. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. The next Perfect. The next one. Uh, what? Oh God! This is another one that can vary widely. What kind of doses are pro bodybuilders using at peak load? Um, right. So there, there obviously is great variability here. Um, I'm, I'm in quite a lucky position that I do consult on PEDs with a lot of pro bodybuilders, especially nowadays through the RP guys. I do a lot of consultation with their friends and clients and whatnot. So I, I get quite a broad view of what's happening, luckily, in, in the pro ranks. And the variability is absolutely insane. But I can draw some averages. Um, it's not hugely uncommon to see five grams of anabolics with 10 to 15 units of growth hormone and 100 to 200 units of insulin. It's not uncommon, but also, when speaking to these individuals, you'll find that um, they even are always quite admittant of progression not escalating much beyond previous experience of a certain point. So if I was going to draw from averages, I would say somewhere in the two to three grams of anabolics marker somewhere in the six to 10 units of growth hormone marker and honestly somewhere in the 30 to 50 units of insulin marker is the most common that i see that they are able to sustain and, and progress from well um when i say sustain that's certainly not a sustainable model over chronic exposure these are pros really pressing it maybe this could be like two mesocycles at the end of an off season or something but 
you know, but before you get into ridiculousness where that where the uh, the concert was literally, I feel fucking terrible and I can't do anything all day. Um, <laughs> there seems to be some some function at, at that kind of dose. So so I'd probably put it there. But again, it's, it's such a broad view. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I think another consideration would be would be size of the individual too. Right. If we're using, if we're using the, the models of certain milligrams per kilo, then, then I'm sure there'd be some variability based on size, but genetics, I suppose would probably be the biggest, the biggest factor is just individual response really. Um, and we, for sure, man, I, I mean, I, I could take like three grams of gear and 10 units of growth. Yep. I'd, de I'd definitely progress, but, Man, there's I even do that for ten years. I wouldn't be on the pro stage. I mean, I might be dead, but if I'm not, I um, I definitely wouldn't be on the pro stage, regardless. Yeah, yeah. There's really there's like this this spectrum that we see, right? It's like the people that respond. You're well. There's really two two main types. I mean, you're going to get two main responses. One, the people that respond really well to lower doses may um, may have a side effect profile that are the ones that the same as the people that respond poorly, but can handle higher doses. It's like, really, it's more so probably how quickly you're growing, uh, how quickly you're growing and how much strain you're putting on your cardiac and renal function, you know? So, yeah, like I was, um, I was doing, uh, it wasn't a consult. I was just going through the blood work of a, um, what would be the comparison for you as like a national level classic competitor here? A very good one. And he yeah. was running, he's running just under two, uh, two and a half grams of gear. Uh, I'm off the top of my head, six units of growth hormone and uh, 20 units Lantus, 20 units Nova Rapid. So 40 units insulin total. Um, no side effects, feels fine, growing really well. Blood work dead clean. It, not not even a reduction in HDF. Like literally, mm -hmm. not, not a single marker out of place. So yeah, and then other people, I'm getting an HDL. They would have like an HDL of two on that on two grams of gear. All right, and, and in English numbers, that's like not point one. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So for us, for us, our range, uh, our like US LabCorp range might be something like. 35 or 40 at the is the bottom end, which most males don't even reach that up, you know, on up. So I'm talking single digits, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. Um, okay, cool. it, it just varies. It varies wildly. Got one more question here. Okay. I'm sorry. I've got two more. One came in since I clicked on this. So we've got two more. Um, Best places to get started uh, with posing for first time competitor. That's good. First time, hire someone. Yes, that is the really answer to this. It's so important. <clears throat> it is so important. Yeah, I think even for more advanced people, it's it's helpful. But for for the beginner at least at the very least having somebody help you with that foundation. So you know what the heck you're practicing because I've seen people, Hey, I'm practicing my posing, um, you know, every day. 
but you're doing, you're practicing it incorrectly, right? So at least at the very least getting a few sessions or, or five sessions or whatever it might be to um, get that foundation, right? So you know what the heck you're practicing, <laughs> you know? Um, and there, there, the choices, there are a lot. There are, you got, you have some options there in the UK, which I do have a few people. I've actually have a few of my clients that uh, pose with um, your guy. Um, so Leon. Yes, with Leon. Yep. Yeah, Leon, is awesome. Leon is awesome. Both uh, uh, Leon Pierce and Rye Brambleby are two absolutely incredible posing coaches that all of my clients are posed by. It's going to be one of those two. Um, and like Austin says, you, you don't have to be in the UK. Online coaching exists in the posing world these days as well. Um, yeah. I mean, imagine, oh, for sure. imagine you're a first time competitor. You do your cardio, you eat your food, you're uncomfortable for long periods of time get shredded out of your mind, but you can't even present the physique that you put so much time and cost and effort into. And I've seen people yep. win shows and I've spoken to judges. I, I remember, I won't name the show, one show last year actually that Leon did, Judge straight up told me he won that on his posing. Because if it's coming close between what you and another person, they're going to have to find something to value one over the other. It, it is so critically important so yeah Leon yep. Pierce and Ryan will be two great guys we've also got some posing videos we've got a posing series on Physique Collective if you just want to check that out but uh, yeah I can't stress the importance of just getting private con uh, consultation uh, to, to be posed for your morphology it's just as important as the nutrition as the training as the expenditure yeah, your posing is just as important yep and in the US we have we have some options as well um and it, it depends to, you know, like what level of competitor you are. So for example, here, um, I have, well, I have North Americans uh, next, not this coming weekend. It's about two weeks. Yeah. About two weeks away. Um, I have that client in particular posing with Kenny Wallach. Why? Because Kenny goes to all the national shows. Mm -hmm. So, so he can, pop around room to room and check on people. Right. So just depends on convenience too. Like if you're competing at those bigger shows and the, and the person's actually going to be there too, that might be of some help. Um, so, and one other consideration too, is as you get, as you get bigger or develop or your physique changes, your posing might change as well. So just because what you did five years ago might not look the same now, you know, in fact, it, it probably shouldn't if you've developed if you've become more, um, more symmetrical, if you will, or more complete. Absolutely. Okay, we've got one more. Perfect. One more. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty simple, almost novel one. Um, home gym build. Give me you guys favorite cable stations. Uh, well, sorry. we already we talked about that. I, I have my list. I have my list, which is from you. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what? I've, um, I've bought, I did I already buy? Yeah, I, I had bought the cables when we last week. So I, um, so yes, I, you did. what I would say, it's going to depend on, on your budget, right? So if we're talking up to 2000 pound, 
I would recommend something like the Cyvex FT360 cables. They offer you quite a lot of versatility with the free moving arms. You can make it a four to one cam ratio if you perform your movements unilaterally. So unilaterally, sorry. So that's a great cable stack. If you've got more cash to spend, maybe up to 10 grand, um, the best cables, in my opinion, on the planet, saying that I haven't tried the prime ones, they look pretty good, are the Cybex Bravo Pro cables. Um, in, in the last couple of weeks, I've finally got my hands on my own set and, and uh, no, no exaggeration at all. It has changed my training. It's completely flipped my world upside down. The, the brace, the four to one cam ratio on both sides, the versatility of the cables, the how heavy the stack size a 400 kilo stack imagine trying to table press that you know you, you're not running out of room on the stack that it just it's like they've thought of everything so cybex bravo pro 100 percent um if you go more budget cybex ft360 yeah if you can even if you can even find this bravo pro for sale uh, <laughs> In the UK, good luck, man. You're like, I, it took me three years, and then I didn't even find it myself. It was one of my clients that saw it come up and immediately bought it. And then I, uh, he bought it for me because he knew that I needed one. So I just bought it from him. <laughs> yeah, I've been. I'm. I don't know how much they cost in the US, but I would, uh, I would venture to say, probably similar. I, th I from what I've seen, things are quite a bit cheaper in the 80s. US. Uh, so this is, yeah, this one is retails at $8,700 and they doesn't say, oh, out of stock. <laughs> this is the problem. Yeah. You, you, they don't come up man. and they don't, they obviously they don't make them anymore. Um, and everybody that has one, they don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. It's, it's like other pieces like the nitro, the Northwest nitro pull down. They don't come up. You know, you don't find them. Or, well, you'll be looking for years and then you'll get absolutely bent over for it. It's funny. I yeah. get <laughs> on a lot of my gym kit uh, on Instagram um, where I've done like gym tours. I've had gyms message me like, oh, oh man, you know, what would you sell that pull down for? Or just, it's like, no, there's no price. <laughs> I'm not selling this baby. But if you do get your hands on one, um, it's only going to appreciate. You're never going to lose money on this kind of kit. So that's at least one. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Awesome. That's all the questions. Um, I hope that that was all useful for all of you guys listening. Keep your eyes out for next month's for September's Q and A. It's going to be coming out uh, on Austin's um, social media towards the end of next month. Thank you all for listening. Please check out the sponsors in the show notes below. We'll catch you guys next week. Peace.